Good evening, everyone. Hello, how are you doing, Mr. Real? It's 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time, and it's time for another episode of Mormonism Live. You know what? I just saw you recently, maybe 48 hours ago or so. Really? Yeah, we started. Okay, I wasn't doing anything compromising. No, we started a brand new weekly news program with John DeLynn and Rebecca Biblioteca, and uh, I think some future uh, content creators will be joining us, but uh, we put out our first show, talked about some recent articles in regards to sexual abuse and how the church is handling those, including a recording by the church's uh, a legal representative about a, uh, what was the handbook they had? It was a, do you remember the name of it? Oh, no, I don't. I uh, That was Rebecca's um, thing, I think, or is it in the, the article? I can't remember. I'm so focused on tonight, I can't even think about two nights ago. But I would encourage folks to check out the Mormon Times on our YouTube channel or several other channels that it showed up on, including Open Stories or Mormon Stories and Mormonish. Yeah, and it's great, absolutely. So what you're saying is you did see me doing something compromising. Nope. Yeah, okay. So anyway, yeah, please uh, look for that. We're trying to get this thing up and off the ground. By the way, it's been three years now, almost to the very day since we did the opening episode of Mormonism Live, Bill. Yeah, that was uh, Fair Mormon and TITS. Yes, that's right. And one of us is still standing, and it's not TITS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, they uh, they disappeared pretty quick, didn't they? Yes, they did. <laughs> but do you have anything else you want to you talk about? No, just super excited for everybody to join us, and uh, RFM has a great show prepared for tonight. Yes, well, you had the inspiration to have Paul Toscano on the show last week where he talked about some of his ideas. And then I talked with him, and I think Margaret was there, his wife, at the time. And so uh, we did a, a phone call with all three of us. They had a delightful conversation. And I wanted to ask them, and they agreed to come on the show together and talk about their story because both of them are very important people in Mormon history. And it is important, I think, that what with a new generation coming in here, and a lot of them being part of the audience of the show, that they get to meet these people and hear their stories so that their story not be forgotten. That would be a tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. Don't you think so, Bill? I do. And, uh, you know, the September 6th and their connection to that, and then we'll get into how Margaret's story sort of veers off a little bit and shows up later, but... Um, there's a lot of people in Mormonism who have paid a price to be truth tellers or to share their perspective or to shine a light on the unhealthiness of LDS hierarchy. Yeah. And that's why tonight's episode is titled the Toscano excommunications. Can we bring them on? Let's do it. There's Paul Toscano and Margaret Toscano. Hello. How are you? Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hi, folks. <laughs> Well, let me get myself out of the way as much as I can, as quick as I can. And uh, I know we've talked about this and what we're going to be talking about tonight. It's basically your story and as it relates to your excommunications. And um, I know that that happened. By the way, as between the, th the four of us, I'm the only one who is still a member of the church. I just wanted to point that out. And he, okay, everybody's happy about that, I can tell. He may <laughs> also be one of us four who <laughs> in the morning, but he won't talk about it. 
Yeah, well, if you get your second anointing early, you can avoid the excommunication mess later. That's what I found out. <laughs> so, Margaret, Paul, can you tell us, how did you two get together? And um, I know you're both scholars, and you're both still fascinated with Mormonism, but how did you get together, and what on earth happened that led to your excommunications? And that's basically the whole question I have for tonight's show. Well, and that's a long process, right? So shall I start, Paul? Paul? Yes. Okay. Am I a little behind or can does my sound feel okay? There was a little um, glitch there for a second, but it's fine yeah, now. Yeah, but it's okay now. Okay. So um, I think it's very interesting that Paul and I came to Mormonism from a very different perspective. But maybe I should say, first of all, we met at BYU, <laughs> the great uh, place of meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but I am sixth generation Mormon on all sides. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona, an old pioneer Mormon family. Um, my parents were um, faithful members, but I have to say that my family didn't really fit into the mainstream in some ways. Um, we had a very open house, not a lot, you know, not a lot of rules, um, free discussions, um, a very nurturing kind of household. My father was not the controlling patriarch. He never, um, he never uh, uh, had any kind of church leadership position. Um, he was the type who put up the chairs and took them down. Anyway, I went to um, I went to BYU in 1967 as a freshman, and um, I guess that on the one hand, I was a typical Mormon girl in the sense that I wanted to get married and have kids. But I was also a budding intellectual. Even when I was in high school down in Mesa, Arizona, I started identifying as an intellectual. I was a huge reader. So, you know, while one of my best friends in high school was reading Seventeen magazine, I was reading Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, right? So I was, and, and I loved existential philosophy. I remember that was one of the first books I bought was a book of four plays by existential writers like Sartre and Camus. Anyway, so when I went to BYU, I was kind of came in as a misfit because I didn't fit into the typical pattern. Um, I started to get interested in Mormon history and Mormon documents because of a boyfriend I had who um, later became my husband. I was married to him for two years. And in fact, I met Paul through my first husband, Guy Potter. So it's kind of an interesting story. Um, and also Guy Potter introduced me to the underground documents collecting, which a lot of you now don't know that that happened. But if you think about basically before, what, 1999, 2000, where did you get access to all of you know, the kind of hidden Mormon history. It certainly was not online. And basically had to know somebody or sign up to Dialogue Magazine, something like that. Well, Guy Potter, my first husband, who was from England, he was not a return missionary. He was not the typical BYU guy. One of the first guys who really liked me <laughs> because he was not typical. Well, he introduced me to Mike Quinn. I met Mike Quinn in 1971. Uh, actually up in the church historian's office. We were all doing research up there in 1971. Uh, I met Andy Ehat. I met a lot of these people who were doing really great research. And so 
I started to get to know about all the controversies. I have to laugh because I know for some people, when they learn about all of these, you know, strange things in the Mormon 19th century past, they get all upset and lose their testimony. My reaction was, oh, good. This is an interesting religion. It's not boring like Sunday school. I could really get into this. I kind of want to know all about this. So I got all excited. Well, in that same year, 1971, um, Guy, my boyfriend at the time, and I were walking through the, B the Harold B. Lee Library, and we ran into Paul. And Guy introduced me to Paul, and um, we became good friends. In fact, later, I was having some roommate troubles, um, and... I moved into the ward, the BYU ward, where Paul was. And so we began to have all these really interesting long discussions. So maybe I'll let Paul take over from there. But that was how I met Paul. So that was Guy's fatal error. It was introducing you to Paul. <laughs> well, actually, I was divorced by the time I was married. I knew I was I dated Guy for several years. Very interesting man a womanizer. He eventually got kicked out of the church, not for, for um, research, but for womanizing and uh, immorality. Anyway, we were married for two only two years. He eventually went back to England, died in about a couple of years ago. But yeah, I mean, I'm so glad he introduced me to Paul. So Paul, too. maybe you can say something from there. Well, I, I should mention that Margaret and I come from very different backgrounds. My my people came from Sicily uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, my my grandparents, my maternal grandparents came like in 1904. Uh, actually, they came from Tunisia because my they had moved from Sicily while they were single to Tunis, where they got married uh, in Tunisia because it was a French protectorate. My grandfather was a fisherman and they just had made more money there. And they had their children there, a bunch of them, including, we believe, my dad, although that was very obscured. It may be that they smuggled my dad in when he was a baby because uh, that my paternal grandparents came to America on the last boat that left the Mediterranean in, 19, in August of 1914, just mm. before World War I. So they made it out, and I think my dad might have been ill. He... he he was a twin. His twin had died. We learned this near the end of his life. He finally revealed it. And uh, he was, I think, smuggled in. So from his perspective, from my looking at my paternal line, I'm a really a first-generation American. Um, on my mother's side, I'm a second-generation American. And you were and not I, born in the church, were you, Paul? What? You were not born in the church like Margaret was, right? No, I was born, no, no, I was... I went to Catholic school in Brooklyn. There's a famous story where when I was in kindergarten, the teacher asked me a question and the nun, uh, they looked like nuns out of the Bells of St. Mary's, that movie. And she asked me a question and I whispered, I whispered the answer. She says, I can't hear you, Paul, speak up. I said, well, you could hear better if you got those flaps off your ears. And <laughs> she told this to my parents and they thought it was very funny. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, they moved to California a couple of times, but the final time was in 1953, and I was about eight. And they moved to West Covina, where I uh, I lived, and and I contacted the church uh, while I was in high school. I was proselyted by one of the students there, and um, I was 
really not interested in Mormonism at first, nor Mormon culture, nor Mormon activities. But I was very interested in Mormon theology because he, he, this kid told me about all the strange things that Mormons believe. And instead of being repelled by them, I thought, oh, that, that's all very interesting. So like Margaret, I, I was never put off by the oddities of Mormonism. I just thought that they were really interesting. And I was baptized into the church um, after quite a struggle with my parents who were terribly put off by that decision of mine. But anyway, in, I was baptized on the Ides of March in 1963. And, um, and then I went, uh, I, was, I was confirmed on March 17th. So I don't know what I was on March 16th, that Saturday, I have no idea. I had been baptized, but not confirmed. But uh, on September 19th of 1963, I arrived at BYU because uh, I had graduated from high school uh, that year. And so I went to BYU. And curiously, I was excommunicated exactly 30 years later on September 19th, 1993. So that makes a nice bookend historically. Mm. Um, and I went to BYU and I, um, you know, kind of impoverished because I was living on $40 a month. You could get, a, you can get along on very little money back then uh, because there was very little money to be had. And so that's how I got to BYU and that's how I got baptized. That's my story. And um, well, what did you think when you first met Margaret, if I can ask? Well, I first met Margaret, like she said, in 1971, I knew Guy and we were all trading documents under the table because people were able to go in, into the church archives. I mean, I, I, in 1975, I was with a group of guys. We got into the church archives. I uh, Not only did I see all the minutes of the Council of the Twelve, which are not available anymore, but I uh, would go down to the Manti Temple uh, at, when I was endowed. Right after I got endowed in 1965, I got endowed. Would go down to the Manti Temple, which is our Provo district back then because there was no Provo Temple. And I would go down into the vault. I was allowed to go down in the, in the vault and look at the books, and I saw these two huge volumes of Second Washings and Anointings. And I opened the books, and I started to read the ordinance and to see. They didn't have the ordinance written out, but they had all the records of people getting the ordinance and how the ordinances were done for the dead. And they were doing uh, Second Anointings for the dead as well. And uh, eventually, Harold B. Lee had all of these volumes collected out of the temples where they existed, and so uh, I, I remember going back, and I knew the president of the Manti Temple, so he, he would let me get around in the temple when I wanted to. And uh, But those books were gone because Harold B. Lee uh, took them out after he became president, and I think it was uh, July of 72 he became president of the church, and he ordered them all taken out. But anyway, I met Margaret in 71, going over to her apartment, and I remember her sitting on the floor with her very long hair and she was reading one of her books and she had just put up her cinder block bookshelf with the planks and the, you know, we all had those and it was loaded with books and she was reading something. And I spent quite a long time uh, talking to her and thinking that Guy was a very fortunate man to, to be able to connect with such a incredible person. I had no idea that in the end, I would be married to her. 
When I did gotta, you get married? Was that like two weeks later? <laughs> 1978. Oh, yeah. So I, I was married to Guy between 1975 and 1977, even though, you know, I had met Paul quite a long time before that. And we stayed really good friends. Um, and then we got married in 1978. So only a year after Guy and I got divorced. Um, Guy and I weren't married in the temple because he'd been excommunicated for philandering. And but then Paul and I were married in the temple. Just another little story. Paul went to law school. So I started, I, I did an undergrad degree in English, being a lover of literature. And um, as I like to tell my Latin students, my first husband, Guy, pers persuaded me to take Latin. Um, and, you know, as I tell my students, he's that boyfriend is long since gone, but Latin lasts forever. So mm -hmm. I got all excited about studying ancient languages. I got really interested about biblical studies. So that was at the beginning, end of my undergrad. And then I did a master's in classics. So I have a BA in English, a master's in classics. Eventually, after I had kids and years later, I did my PhD at the University of Utah in comparative literature. But um, so I was uh, right after... Interestingly, I graduated with my BA on the very same day that Paul graduated with his MA in English. And I remember I was there with my parents and actually with Guy. And then we saw Paul with his parents. So we met them at the graduation ceremony. And um, then in 75, he started law school and I was working on my master's. I was starting to teach. I, I taught uh, Latin and Greek and classical languages at BYU for quite a long time. And uh, I started teaching in 1974. I can't believe I've now taught, I've been teaching for 50 years, 5-0. And um, first at BYU, then Salt Lake Community College. Um, and I've been at the University of Utah since 1996. But um, while I was working on my master's, Paul was in law school and I would meet him and his friends, almost all male. I think they were all male, Paul. And we would yeah. eat, meet at the Cougar Eat. And we'd have these two-hour lunches where we'd sit around a round table discussing theology and serious issues. And we had these very animated, exciting conversations. And people would try to eavesdrop. We would notice that as we were talking, we'd be having these animated discussions about theology and so forth people would start sitting around us and pretty soon we'd have two concentric circles of observers listening to us for these two hour lunches um, at the Cougar Eat. So Why do you those, think that was? What? Why do you think that was? Well, you know, my experience is, and I see this as really very sad. My experience is that, you know, if, if, Mormons in general, I think, and I see this with my LDS students at the U, Mormons are interested in ideas and theology. If you didn't have these restrictions laid down by the church, I think you'd have much more open discussions. This is my experience in teaching Sunday school over the years, too, that people I remember right before Paul got axed in 93, I was teaching Sunday school in our ward. And I would have people come up to me and say, it is so refreshing to hear somebody say something that we haven't been hearing for the last 20, 30 years, right? So I don't know. That's always been my experience that 
there's a lot more curiosity out there and but there's such an oppressive atmosphere but anyway so uh, i knew him all the way through his law school he finished law school in 78 i was divorced we got married um and yeah in 1978 and you got married I in the temple yeah, we got married. It's a personal in the question. I apologize. What temple? No, no, no. We we got married in the Salt Lake Temple. So my now, first the marriage... temple worker. I have to say that the temple worker that performed our marriage thought we had already been married before, and that this was not a temple marriage. It was a ceiling. It was not a first time. They thought we had been married, and so we sat down in the in the room with the altar there, and our friends were there, and the old temple worker stood up and he said a few words, and then he said, "Where's the baby?" <laughs> and I looked at Margaret and I said, was there a baby? I don't remember the baby. <laughs> and some people that were there were very upset at this old temple worker. Margaret and I weren't because uh, we just laughed. We, just we were never sure if he actually married us because he got all distracted. <laughs> I'm not sure we were ever married because he's, he's so uh stumbled through the ceremony and it was the wrong ceremony i, I we have I maybe we signed we, some papers though paul we did sign papers i suppose that matters it, it may be yeah. just a common law marriage that finally lasted <laughs> long enough under the law to be real <laughs> you could be sealed in the temple but not married uh it's yeah, true we know, who knows what happened there <laughs> I, well, think Margaret, I, I want to say something. We by getting the question about Margaret and I getting married, which is, you know, it's not an unusual question. I we skip some things that happened before that that I want to get back to. Please do. Uh, and, and Margaret can help me through this a little bit. But I'm looking at a piece of paper that I, I don't forget. Um, uh, when I got to the to BYU in 1963, by the time 1964 came around. I had uh, I had met Hiram Andrus as a religion teacher, and I started to take all of his courses and kind of to the, I was ignoring other courses that I should have been taking, but I was signing up for his religion courses on Joseph Smith's thought and Joseph Smith and world government and Joseph, a bunch of Joseph Smith things and history courses. And I, I, um, so I took a lot of religion courses from him, but then I became his research assistant. And as such, I, I, it was in this context that I started to know about the underground documents. And so even before I met Margaret in 71, and even before I met Guy, uh, which happened later in the 60s, um, I knew that documents were being traded on the uh, underground. It was hard to get some of these things. And people in the church uh, historian's office would often... Uh, I can't say Xerox. I'm not sure what they were doing because they didn't have the machinery, but they had some form of copy machinery back then. It left a bad odor on the paper, I can tell you that. And so these things would circulate and we'd see a, a record of this or a record of that. And it was that long ago that I saw, for example, the record of Joseph uh, Smith and his companion second anointing, uh, which talks about that Joseph Smith Barak was anointed uh, to the president of the council uh, and his wife and his companion, ditto, right? I mean, that was the in, in 1843 in, in, uh, when that happened. And so, you know, we saw a lot of the documents that were very crucial. 
And so that's one aspect you've got. And so that before I went on my mission, I um, I knew a lot about Mormonism and its idiosyncratic past, strange past. And when I went, uh, I didn't think I'd go on a mission because the Vietnam quota was going and mm -hmm. already two missionaries uh, from the Ballin Park Second Ward in San Gabriel had already been sent on missions. They both went to Italy. And so I didn't think I was going to go on a mission and I didn't have the money to go on a mission. And so, but when I went back for the summer of 1966, the, the bishop there uh, said, well, there's a, an open space in our sister ward that shares the chapel and they have, they have a room for a missionary. And so we're going to take their quota. And if you want to go, I'll send you on a mission. And I said, well, I, I don't have any money. And he said, well, you can work with me on construction this summer and make enough money. And uh, you can then we'll get the ward, the elders quorum to send you some money. And that was fine. And then I contacted Bruce Olson, who had been the uh, president of the BYU student body, who later became in public relations in the church. He was the public relations director when uh, Gordon Hinckley was president of the church. Um, I knew him and he sent me some money uh, for my mission. And when I got off my mission, I sent money to his brother on, on his mission. So uh, I, it was kind of a, a fair swap there. And um, in any case, there I am getting interviewed to go on my mission. I was very surprised. And in the middle of this interview, uh, I got to talking about my experience at BYU and with Hiram Anderson. I told my bishop that I had learned that uh, Joseph Smith had married his first plural wife, uh, Clarissa Reed, and then later Fanny Alger. And uh, my bishop's face froze like on Mount Rushmore. I mean, he said, Elder, that's false doctrine. Joseph Smith never practiced polygamy. That's a false teaching of the reorganized church. And I, I kind of sat there contemplating this absurd declaration. And I realized he's serious. He, he got it mixed up. And I said, well, I knew that I couldn't convince him. So I said, well, Bishop, I'm, I'm sorry that I, I made that mistake. I, he says, I can't send you on a mission if you're going to be teaching false doctrine. We're filling out the papers to send in uh, to Salt Lake so I could go on my mission. He says, I'm not going to sign these papers if you believe false doctrine. I said, well, Bishop, you know, I'm only a convert. I, <laughs> I must have gotten it wrong. He right. says, Elder, that's a lesson to you, he said. You, you just have to learn to follow your leaders and, and, and not be led astray. By, by you have to be following your leaders. And I thought to myself, well. <laughs> yeah, well, if I'm you, all I'm thinking is, how much do I want to see the jungles of Vietnam? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I actually wasn't worried about that so much because I had medical issues that I knew would not allow me to go to Vietnam because of my spine problems. In any case, in any case, yeah, please. I, I want you to interrupt. <laughs> so I think it's really interesting as we go through our, our history of, you know, how we met and so forth, that Paul got in trouble very early in the church. He got in trouble on this story he just told about um, um, 
lying to he had to lie to go on his mission right and how you know he was doing research before that and so forth and we don't we won't have time to tell all of paul's funny stories he has a lot but he also got in trouble with his mission president um for being insubordinate and so he had all of these encounters with general authorities in fact i'm sort of amazed at the people that paul met um he had an encounter with Harold B. Lee when he was in the mission home. On his mission, he met Hartman Rector, who actually became a really close friend of our family, which is very fascinating. <laughs> I mean, Hartman, for some reason, he loved Paul. And, you know, Paul could convince him of anything until he left the room. And then Hartman would go back believing his crazy stuff. But Hartman just loved Paul. In fact, the day that Paul was excommunicated, Hartman called our house and he was just so upset. He said, how could they do this to you? You're, you're such a good person. You don't deserve to be excommunicated. So it's really interesting that Paul had all of these interesting encounters with the general authorities. He got in trouble because he was always outspoken. I didn't really start getting in trouble until um, after we were married and when I gave my first Sunstone speech in 1984. And that was kind of, well, actually, we did have one other encounter before that, one or two, right? But well, let me, I, I want to tell the Harold B. Lee story. Yeah, it's the Harold really B. Lee story happened as I'm leaving Salt Lake for my mission. I, uh, I, I called Harold B. Lee's office because I wanted to ask, that's how naive I was, I wanted to ask him about the, about the Adam God doctrine. And so I called over to the church office building. And uh, the secretary said, "Well, let me send, let me connect you with President Lee's office, or, or I guess Elder Lee's office at that time." And um, I said, "Fine." And then he picks up the phone. I thought I thought I would get his secretary and make an appointment, and she would tell me, "Oh, he's too busy," you know. But I didn't really. He's on the phone, and so I said, "I." And I said that to him. I said, "Elder Lee, I didn't expect to get you. I thought your secretary would answer." He says, what is it, Elder? And I said, well, I'm over here in the mission home on my way to Italy. And I thought before I left, I'd get a chance to talk to you. Maybe you could explain to me the Adam God doctrine. He said, you come right over. I said, well, I'm not allowed to leave here. Yes, you are. I tell you, you come right over. And so I said, well, all right. So I walked, uh, it was October. It was a nice day. I walked over uh, to the administration building and went in and they, uh, his office was on a corner office up there. And I got there and the secretary said, he's waiting for you. Go in. He, I go in. I'm standing there. He's working at his desk. He doesn't look up. The door closes behind me. And then I, I'm, I'm not seated. He looks up and he says, sit down, Elder. So I sit down. He says, what is it? And I, I asked him the question. He says, Elder, that is a false and pernicious doctrine. And you should never look into it again. And then he excoriated me for about 30 minutes. You know, I'm sitting there getting smaller and smaller and shrinking into the chair and <laughs> sweating profusely. And then he, he seems to be done. And and then in a brilliant, inspired stroke, I, I just, as I'm supposed to leave, I said to him, well, Elder Lee, I, I just wondered if you would uh, you will ever be president of the church. And he, at that question, he just brightened up his whole, his whole demeanor changed. And he went on there for another hour, explaining <laughs> me in extreme detail how the, uh, you know, the how the president of the church is 
it's the seniority system and why it's there and how it has happened in the past and his experience with other presidents being made, you know, like Joseph Fielding Smith Jr. and how his job would be as a, he went on. And then at the end, he shook my hand. He was very kind at the end and I left. And that was my first encounter with Harold B. Lee. I had a couple of others, but that was the one on way to my mission. What did you take away from that? Well, I didn't, I, he seemed to think that Brigham Young never taught it. And so I didn't want to, you know, I, I wasn't in a position to contradict him on his belief, but I knew otherwise, but I, I, I felt a little bit like my, my um, bishop. They, he hadn't paid attention to the details uh, of, of the history of it, but um, he seemed to be certain that it was never taught. It, my takeaway is very much when you're talking about something that's fringe, as we know, like the Adam God theory and discountenanced by the church in the 20th century, that that's going to be something where you get excoriated. But in the same meeting, all you have to do is ask him about administration in the church. And now you get an hour long lecture and you end up best friends. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or, they are the administrators. They're not the theologians of the church. So that was that was the meeting that I had. Now there were other things that happened before I met Margaret. I'm not sure. Let's see if there's anything really interesting. Well, when I went to Italy, it was one mission. Uh, I went to Rome. Not immediately. I was uh, sent to Brindisi first, which is on the heel of the boot of Italy. Then I was transferred to Reggio, which is on the toe. And I was reading the Book of the Acts, and I realized Saint Paul. My name is Paul, and so Saint Paul was in Reggio. And then I went from Reggio to Rome where I, I, I was the first missionary in Rome with my, he was my district leader, David Rodi, and I were the ones who opened Rome. I actually dedicated the city of Rome for the church from one of the, from the Palatine Hill. Uh, I, really? I actually offered the dedicatory prayer. And uh, now there's back. a temple there because of you. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. No, I don't think it was because of me. <laughs> it was in spite of me. <laughs> but um yeah i mean paul has so many interesting stories as i said he um he got in trouble a lot earlier than i ever did because he was always outspoken and would challenge people and one of the things that attracted to me to paul when i first met him um was that he was always a very charismatic speaker and a charismatic um you know just was so good and so intelligent with conversation. It was extremely attractive to me, even though I was married at first to somebody different. Um, but I think that when uh, Levina Fielding Anderson, who was one of the September 6th, recently passed away. And of course, the thing that got her in so much trouble was that she documented instances of ecclesiastical ab abuse. Um, both the kind of ecclesiastical abuse that Paul and I and others who've been called in and excommunicated or silenced, had their temple recommends taken away and so forth. And then, of course, she had did several volumes of um, sexual abuse and those kinds of things as well. But Levina told Paul and me later, she said, you and Paul, she said this to me, you and Paul have more instances of being on the wrong side of the leaders than anybody else that's on my list. And it's true that, you know, at first it was mostly Paul because he was willing to stand up to them. On his mission, he challenged the, 
mission president and got in trouble, in fact, was reduced to a, a junior companion in his last year because he challenged the state president. So I always admired that about no, him. The mission president, I challenged the mission oh, president. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I I misspoke myself there, Paul. Yeah, he challenged him. But I, I have to say that I always admired that about Paul, that he was willing to stand up and speak what he felt was true. And I think very early, the main thing that he criticized the leaders for, um, I mean, you many of you heard his interview with Bill a week or so ago, and he obviously has a lot of doctrinal ideas, but those were not the things that mostly got him in trouble. It was that he criticized the abuse of authority, the fact that the leaders do not teach Christian love, and uh, he criticized the corporate structure of the church. So those were the three main things that always got him in trouble. And he was always willing to speak out really strongly about that. Interestingly, the, thing, the two things I got in trouble for were arguing that women have a theological and historical right to priesthood within the Mormon uh, structure, and also because of my writings on Heavenly Mother. So for me, it was really, you know, feminist issues. Um, during that time, actually, when I was doing my master's degree at BYU, I basically became a feminist. I remember hearing Gloria Steinem, the great feminist, saying one time when she gave a talk in Salt Lake City, she said, the Mormon church has made more feminists than I ever have. And, and that was certainly true for me. For me, it was being at BYU. Being a smart woman at BYU and seeing how I was always, you know, these Mormon, these men always kind of tried to keep me under, you know, they were the priesthood holders. I became a feminist at BYU. And, um, so, and, you know, I remember around the time of about 1976, so a couple of years before I married Paul, that I got very interested in issues of feminism. And I, I also became very interested in biblical studies and Mormon uh, feminist theology, reading a lot of women and other traditions to explore questions of you know, can you really argue within Christianity, Judaism, or Mormonism? Are there any chinks in this sort of big patriarchal structure? And um, and so that was, you know, that sort of began a journey for me in the 70s of wanting to, you know, learn all I could to argue, you know, whether or not, well, really for me, it was, is there any hope for me to stay in this thing? Or is it so patriarchal that, you know, there's there's no place for women? And it sounds like the leadership answered that question for you. Yeah, eventually they they said, no, there was no place. <laughs> In fact, I, I, I'm sort of jumping ahead. But when they had the excommunication, I'll go ahead and call it a court. Um, but they told me we have to excommunicate you so that nobody will believe you in the things that you have written. So, yeah, it, it, you know, everything I did and, you know, I was sort of naively at first, I didn't think that my writings were that controversial. I sort of thought, wow, I've just done all this research. I'd really like other people to learn about it. <laughs> but very, very quickly, I was in trouble. Well, I remember back in 1993, like it was 30 years ago, 
And I recall being in the prosecutor's office, being a deputy prosecutor. Of course, I'm a member of the church and reading the newspaper one day, and there's a headline on it about a bunch of these uh, Mormon scholars suddenly getting excommunicated. And I remember looking at that and thinking, wow, I'm not sure that's a good thing. But then if the church is doing it, then they must really be saying some bad stuff. <laughs> that's where I was. I was 1993, so I was 33 years old. But I understand now that, interestingly, Paul gets excommunicated, if I'm correct, in 1993. And Margaret, you slipped the noose for a number of years. Yeah, we can talk about the reason for that. Maybe uh, deal a little bit more with that that summer that, you know, the 93, the famous September of 93 first, and then we'll come back to why I got, you know, why my case got put on hold. But I think I wanted to say something else, RFM, that Please. one of the things that I found, you know, when the, our, you know, when our excommunications were very public is that people had a hard time believing that we could just be excommunicated for what we said and believed and what we wrote. They always thought, well, you must have done something. You know, did you secretly commit adultery? Did you, you know, was there, you were smoking or drinking or something. They didn't want to believe that it was simply because of what we were writing. And I, and I think it's interesting that in a way you could say that Paul and I weren't really um, challenging the truth claims. I mean, privately, you know, I did have a lot of doubts, but in my writings, I was trying to show that, you know, that Mormonism in its history and theology had openings for creating more equality between men and women. So I was more saying, look, within our tradition, there are possibilities here. We don't have to have the same structure we have now. But the leaders found that very, very threatening. I mean, actually, from the time I gave my first speech at Sunstone in 84, I started um, being called in by leaders who were very upset, even without reading or listening to me, just the fact that I said something about, I think women should be ordained to priesthood, that that in and of itself was considered threatening. And, um, and I mean, yeah, Paul really challenged them on the basis that they were not good leaders, that they were not doing a good job. So I don't know, Paul, maybe I should, first of all, because before 1993, actually, um, there was a, I, what I see as an important event in um, August of 1989, I was part of a group that I had helped found called the Mormon Women's Forum. It was a public um, group and we had at first monthly meetings and we would get big audiences and we want to discuss gender issues in the church. Uh, Kelly Frame and Karen Christ were the other two that were doing it with me. Well, we had a big debate in August of 1989 about whether or not women should be ordained to priesthood. And we had two on one side and two on the other. So it was a real debate. In fact, Christine Durham didn't, Paul, she was actually the kind of judge the whole thing. Who She later became a, a Utah Supreme Court judge. But um, I was arguing for women being ordained. There were 600 people. The debate was held in East High School. There were 600 people that attended. The TV stations were all there. It got written up in the paper. I have to laugh because young people now think that before the internet, nobody knew anything or connected. Mm. But I mean, it was, it went on 
you know, the, the nightly news and so forth and was in the paper. I had been teaching at BYU for 14 years. Suddenly, within two days after that debate, they canceled my upcoming class at BYU without telling me. Suddenly, the class was just removed from the course schedule, and I had to pry it out of them, you know, and it was punishment for being this public figure of speaking about women and priesthood. So that was in 89 um, and very painful. I mean, again, I taught at BYU for 14 years. I taught Greek and Latin and mythology and, and I was teaching at the BYU Salt Lake Center. And suddenly without even talking to me, I'm just silently fired. Um, so that was in 89. And then in 93, actually, I was threatened first before Paul. I had, um, I gave this, I had a, what I call my, well, Paul. Margaret, called, what, Margaret what? before you get into that, I want to go back and, okay. and mention a couple of things before we get into the things that led to that, that you're talking about. One of, uh, one of the things that I wanted to explain Margaret's statement about how I got crosswise with my mission president. What happened was that I was on the office staff as the historian and recorder. And in that position, the, the president of the mission had sent me uh, around the whole, Italy was one mission then. And so I traveled to every city three times by myself. And um, when I asked him, I said, well, shouldn't I have a companion? And he said, well, pretend like you're on a transfer. And I didn't know whether that was a threat or not, but I went. I went to, um, I went around to all the cities, uh, trying to catch up on all the correlated reports. I, he had he had put me in, essentially in charge of the church, so I would approve uh, baptisms. I would approve ordinations to the priesthood. I was like the president of this church in Italy for a few months, and um, I, I I went around mostly by myself. I think one time I went with another missionary, uh, at least part of the way. Uh, and in that, and then when I get back, I'd have to fill out all these back, the, these, how shall I say, they're out of the, out of time. They, they hadn't been done all these back correlated reports that hadn't been sent in. And it took me hours cause we had no technology to help us. It was all hand done. And while I was there, the district, uh, leader of Florence, cause we were in the mission home was in Florence, Italy. And the mission, uh, the district leader of Florence would come in to make his report to the assistants to the president. And he, that he had a companion and his companion was named Elder Ferrari. And he was from uh, South America and he could speak Spanish and, and Italian, some Italian, and, but not English. So he was really fairly alienated because the missionaries would, you know, speak in English and sometimes in Italian, but Elder Ferrari was kind of marginalized because of that language barrier. So he would come in and talk to me uh, while his companion was visiting with the assistants to the president. And this would happen once a week. And I could see that he was very lonely and very upset. And I, would, I sat down and he said, look, I, I don't think I have any more faith. And I said, well, Elder, you know, why is this? And I would talk to him. He would seem to feel better next week. The same thing He's in the doldrums. And uh, then I heard through the grapevine, because I was not allowed to participate in the uh, transfers of elders or anything, 
because you know they were in kingdom and I was in clerkdom. So that's how they divided the office staff. And so the assistants, I heard that they were going to transfer Elder Ferrari up to north into to Torino. And I said, you know, I don't think you should do that because I, he's not feeling well and he comes in and talks to me every week and I try to help him. And I think if you, if he goes up there, he'll feel completely stranded. They transferred him anyway, of course. And, uh, and then a few weeks later, he, he, he left Torino and went down to the other end of Italy to, you know, to the heel of the boot of Italy uh, in, in a town down there to visit his girlfriend, allegedly. Well, I, he didn't really have a girlfriend. He just knew some woman down there that he, and when he said, so then we go into a morning, we usually had these morning staff meetings with the president. The president says, uh, Elder Ferrari's left his mission and I'm going to, we're going to excommunicate him. And no one said anything. I said, well, aren't we supposed to, I said to the president, aren't we supposed to have a trial? Aren't we supposed to conduct some kind of a trial? He says, he's guilty and he doesn't deserve a trial. And I said, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I think, I think the trial is supposed to ascertain whether he's guilty or not. I mean, he's guilty of leaving, but we don't know the circumstances. And the president was so angry at me for uh, contradicting him in that meeting. Because after all, God put him on his throne, after all. And then, um, like Solomon, and he actually ended up like Solomon. Um, but he, um, he, he, uh, Sent, he he dismissed me from the office staff, and um, and he was going to make me a junior companion then. But some of my friends said, "No, no, the 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 singing group that was traveling through Italy. We had a singing group, uh, a band that was going around. The elders would go sing in different places to get people interested in Mormonism. They were missing a keyboardist, and I could play the keyboard, so they put me on that. And that was that's a whole nother." incredible story which i'm not going to get into and um and so he broke me and then when when i got released from the from the singing group which was some months later i he did make me a junior companion and sent me up to my final uh city that i was transferred to which is genova genoa italy and um and then from there um then he was released for some impropriety that I won't get into. Your mission president? Yes, he was released Actually, early. It was for adultery. Thank you, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that's very telling, right? The guy who, you know, is. Well, so I don't know if it was for adultery, actually, okay, but maybe it was not. From, I, I shouldn't. Miss, he, he was, he was had some kind of philandering with some woman. But he, and he was sent home. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and then I. I was sent home about three or four weeks later. I, I left the mission field because my time was up. I left a little early so I could get back to BYU and, and get into the next set of courses. And my mission president then was the substitute mission president who was Hartman Rector. And that's how I first yeah, that's how you met, him. met Hartman Rector because he was the person. And we spent a whole day together talking. He would he wanted to know all about the mission and, and President Dunn's, and he had my blue slip, which mission presidents would fill out at the end of your mission that goes into your permanent file. And he read it out loud to me. He says, this is ridiculous. He says, this, this is not at all you. He tore it up. He wrote another thing that was very complimentary. And we had 
a very long talk about various doctrinal issues that he was interested in. And, um, and that's how I first met him. Now, when I got back, when I got to BYU, I, I, this was in 69, I got back in March, uh, by, I immediately started teaching in the mission, uh, the language training uh, mission at, at BYU. Then it wasn't a big fiscal reality. It was here and there. And uh, I was teaching Italian to the new Italian missionaries. And in that, I had the duty, I had the responsibility of teaching them Sunday school. And of course, I, I bring up my old thing that I brought up last time with Bill and you on, the, on, uh, on, on this channel about Christ being the Father and the Son and all of that. Right at out the of the LTM, immediately. What at the L at the language yes, training mission? Yes, he taught the LTM. The, yeah, the missionary training going, center. Yes, at the mission training center. My theory was, if they're going to represent the Lord, they should know who He is. <laughs> Paul always knew how to get himself. In so I, <laughs> I was immediately in trouble, and and I had to talk to President Wilkins, who was the president of the. Language not Wilkinson, mission. not Wilkinson, not the president of the university. This man's name was Wilkins. And Wilkins was the son-in-law of Harold B. Lee. And Harold B. Lee's daughter had died. And so this man was a, 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 a widower. And um, he was very upset with me for saying these things, which had been reported to him secondhand. And he said, I'm sending you up to the leaders of the church they're going to take care of you. And he made arrangements for me to go up to Salt Lake a couple of days later, where I was supposed to meet with one of the general authorities for a dressing down. And so I went up there and I was supposed to meet with Bernard P. Brockbank, one of the assistants to the 12. Back then they had assistants to the 12. I know his and, book. And so I went up there and Brock, uh, Bernard P. Brockbank was sick. And so they had to find somebody else to dress me down. And so person they sent me to was Hartman Rector Jr. And so I walk in the door and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm in trouble for saying this. And I explained to him what it was. And he says, well, I teach that all the time. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. He says, well, I said, President Wilkins found a great deal wrong with that. He called me a troublemaker and said he wanted me out. And he sent, he sent me here to be, I was going to I thought I would be thrown out of the church or whatever certainly out of my job at the language training mission. And so in my presence, Hartman picks up the phone and calls Wilkins on the phone and says, this is Hartman Rector. He says, yes. He says, I've got Paul Toscano in my office. He says, I don't see that he's doing anything wrong. I, I'm going to send him back and I, I stop bothering him. And that was the end of it, but not for me, because I knew that you could not work in the church and have, and, contradict the corporate view. So I immediately... Um, you got another job. I got another job. I remember being with the missionaries when the moon landing happened, but after that, sometime between July of the moon landing and September, I was I had, I had uh, gotten a job as the copy editor of the Banyan yearbook, which paid a little bit of money, which was fine. And I, and I was working with Scott Duncan, who was the editor. And Scott Duncan decided that we needed to go to Salt Lake to get fresh quotes from the top leaders of the church. And so he had a car. So we drive up to Salt Lake. This is in September, October of, of uh, 1969. And um, we have an appointment with Boyd Packer. And we have an appointment with Spencer Kimball. 
And so we go into Boyd Packard's office and I'm facing this man and he's, he's very threatening. And in his presence, you kind of feel extremely intimidated and he had nothing good to say to us. He was just telling us to do this and to do that. And it lasted just the 10 minutes that he allotted. And when it was over, he, he said, what are you, where are you going now? I said, well, we have an appointment with uh, President Kimball who was then, I think, president of the Council of the Twelve, or close to it. I, I think he, he, well, certainly he was Boyd Packer Sr. And I can't remember what his position was now. It could, you could look it up. But in any case, Scott and I went down the hall, and we started to go in, and, and then Boyd Packer comes up behind us. He says, don't you two stay longer than 10 minutes. And so, so we went in, and Spencer Kimball was very gracious. He sat us down. I was sitting next to him. He was—he made us not sit in front of his desk, but to the side of his desk, so he could. And he had a pad there, and he kept us an hour. And it was the sweatiest hour I've ever had because I kept thinking Boyd Packer. I mean, he wouldn't come in and get us because you know he's got to respect President Kimball. But as soon as we went out, I'm sure he would. Have, punched us or something because there's was, a grizzly bear uh, waiting for you in the hallway lurking, lurking but spencer kimball was drawing pictures about he was talking about the native americans and how they had to come into the church and he was worried about the leaders of the church not giving them the full due that they were supposed to get you know that they weren't being paid attention to like they should be and he was talking about this and that and we took down his quotes and they appear in the uh, yearbook for 1970 and that so I, I just wanted to tell those two stories i kept i kept getting in trouble and usually for the same thing i guess well either criticizing leaders or or teaching a doctrine they didn't like that, like for example paul got in trouble for teaching grace so i it's very interesting but i want to we can use boyd packer paul to take us mm -hmm. back to 1993 absolutely because he really was the one behind the purge of 1993. Um, there was a warning before that, and I didn't look it up, but he gave the famous talk to the CES people about the three big dangers to the church. The three big dangers were feminism, the intellectuals, and homosexuals, I think is the term he yeah. used, right? The so-called intellectuals. The so-called intellectuals. And I that know was a lot in of May. That was in May of 1993. That to the all church. Was it 93, Paul? I thought it was 92. Yeah. No, he Anyway, gave that should be looked up because I think it's before, I think it is before that, Paul. But at oh, any okay. rate, uh, I, there were, you know, Paul and I at that point were very involved in the yearly Sunstone Symposia, uh, giving papers. Basically, I gave my first Sunstone paper in 1984. And really gave papers for almost for a long time until the last five or six years I gave papers and was on panels almost every year. Um, so up until the point when Packer gave that talk, you actually had BYU professors who would come and participate, which was very wonderful because there would be these very enlivening discussions, disagreements. And, but then as soon as that uh, speech by Packer came out, I guess that there were two things, Paul, the, pack, the speech the Packer gave, but then also there was a first presidency statement against attending symposia. So there were two that, different... That happened things. in 1991. There was the statement, which appeared in the Salt Lake Tribune. And after that, 
it completely changed the complexion of the people that went to Sunstone. Yeah, or so any scholars that were, you know, wanted to kind of be more mainstream Mormon wouldn't participate anymore either. Um, also, I should mention that Paul and I wrote a book together called Strangers in Paradox, Explorations in Mormon Theology, where um, I had been working a lot on these feminist issues. So it included um, talks that I then had developed into chapters in our book. So that came out in 1990. And in fact, that was a big part of why I got in trouble with Boyd Packer. So there was that. So there was really a lot of tension among the Mormon intellectuals. You know, there was a lot of fear that, you know, you could get in trouble because there had been these warnings by the leaders. But, you know, Paul and I and others didn't feel like we should stop talking. So in 1993, Margaret, I'll just break in here just a second. I can't remember which of you advocated for May 18th of 1993, but that appears to be the date that Boyd K. Packer gave that talk. Oh, okay. He was right. Paul was right. Um, It's always good to check, right? (laughs) So I think the symposia statement came before that, Paul, but I don't know if you could check that to RFM. But Um, those. I think that was in 91. Yeah, those were two very crucial kind of pivotal things. Um, so Boyd Packer was on the on the war path. So um, so that happened 91, 93. Um, anyway, I mentioned this and I'm going to come back to it. Uh, basically, starting in 93, I was very interested in looking at images of goddesses and kind of thinking about how these related. Um, to the Mormon concept of a heavenly mother. I had um, what I called my traveling slideshow. I had given it at the Counterpoint Conference, which was sponsored by the Mormon Women's Forum in the spring. And then I was invited to go down to BYU. Do you remember what month that was? Was it in June? It was in June. It was on June 16th. He just looked that up. So great memory, Paul. Anyway, I was invited to go down Uh, It was a summer session, so there weren't a lot of students around. There was a feminist club at BYU called Voice, and they had invited me to come down to give my slideshow. And I would say there were about 25 people in the audience, and they seemed to really like it. Well, I didn't know at the time, but there was a reporter from the Daily Universe there, and she took my picture, and uh, the story about my presentation ended up on the front page of the daily universe on june 17th the very uh, next day yeah the very next day and it was something like uh i can't remember now paul you you, paul has documented all of this in his memoir which is really interesting but it was sort of like you know this very kind of incendiary title for the article i can say it mother god repressed voice told (laughs) so mother god repressed Anyway, was it just two days later that I got called in by our state president, or maybe it was a week later, but very soon afterwards, our state president, we were living in, not far from where we live now, we live in Murray now, but we lived in the Cottonwood area. I got a call from our state president who wanted to see me very quickly. So I went in and he had been called by a friend of his. They had both been in the CES system together. Boyd Packer had called this mutual friend of our state president 
they do this triangulation, which is very interesting. And he said to, he, and the, he gave a, a, a statement to Carrie Hines. The statement was, can't you control that woman? <laughs> so, you know, can't you control that woman, meaning Margaret Toscano. So Boyd Packer was very upset that I was not being controlled. And so I was told at that point, uh, Carrie Hines basically said, look, you can believe whatever you want, but you cannot talk in public about controversial issues. Well, I'd already been in trouble. I think it was a year before. Maybe it was after I did that. Uh, I think it was after I did the debate at East High where I had a bishop who uh, called me in and reprimanded me for, t uh, for talking about women in priesthood. So that had been a couple of years before. But now in the summer of 93, this was like a very kind of a big threat. And um, he and I argued a lot. He wanted me to concede and say that I would never talk about it again. I refused. Um, and then I think, but he wanted to meet with me again. And this is where I brought Paul with me. And this is a very interesting part of this, that if you're a woman in the church, you're supposed to be controlled by your priesthood leader, your husband. So the only reason Paul was brought in for the second interview with the state president was because he was my priesthood leader as my husband, right? But of course, then Carrie Hines didn't know what he was in for because Paul was furious and started calling him names, <laughs> being so uh, outrageous that, of course, suddenly I didn't appear so bad. <laughs> compared to Paul, I was really quite a nice woman. <laughs> My ideas might be bad, but uh, compared to Paul, you know, I at least I was polite, <laughs> but Paul wasn't. Um, I don't know what happened to Paul. Maybe he'll come back on. Paul, <laughs> I don't. Did did he voluntarily absent himself? I think he just accidentally absent. Well, here I'll try oh, and bring him back. Okay, well, there, there he is. I am. Here you By the are. way, Margaret. Margaret, I can't get over the spectacle of, in response to your talk titled Suppressing Heavenly Mother, they decide to call you in and suppress you. I know. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? Uh, well, it's not unbelievable. That's exactly how the church works, right? But, um, I mean, I, I ended up with, I don't know how many meetings we had with Carrie Hines, Paul, but... Carrie, you know, kept getting, you know, he got more and more angry with Paul. Paul will say that he, and I've rethought this, Paul, he sometimes will say that um, he jumped in to sort of save me. Um, but Paul, I don't really think that that was it. That was a narrative that you and I almost made up later because you were, you felt so bad. <laughs> well, I know he told of, me that. I know that he stole the show. Uh, in a way he did, but I think, I think he would have had the, um, I think he would have had the encounter with Carrie Hines anyway, because Packer actually, and we learned this later, was very upset about the book Strangers in Paradox. Um, because in that book, we have several chapters on priesthood, and I give all the evidence for why I think that Joseph Smith uh, promised and gave women priesthood. And Boyd Packer hated that. And so we were already on his radar. And then when did you tell did you tell the story of 
the tri triangulation. Yeah, of how, um, what was the guy's name that- Well, I can tell it in more detail. What happened okay, was- well, We may well, run out of time though, so maybe, or maybe we won't, maybe we're fine. Okay, it's go okay. ahead. Hey, tell, I tell you what, this is such an exceptional uh, opportunity as far as I'm concerned, because I understand that Paul and Margaret, you really have not been interviewed together. No, we've been interviewed separately a lot, but not together. And I we've been pretty good about not interrupting, except for right now. <laughs> I want to say that what happened was that, see, Boyd didn't knew that it was wrong for him to interfere as an apostle in, in the uh, state judicial processes. But he couldn't and so what he did, rather than call Kerry Hines uh, directly, who was our state president, and Kerry was an old friend of his from Brigham City. They had worked together in the Indian program years before. Uh, or in the Institute program years before, something like that. Anyway, he didn't want to call him directly. So he calls a guy named Melvin Hammond, who's a mutual friend uh, of theirs. And Melvin Hammond was serving in an area presidency in Mexico. And so he calls uh, Melvin Hammond and he says, why can't Kerry uh, control that woman? That's what he calls it, that woman. Why can't Kerry control that woman? And, and uh, you know, Melvin doesn't know what's going on, but that day he calls Carrie and, uh, and he and says, Carrie calls uh, me and Carrie, he says, why can't you control that woman? And Carrie immediately calls Margaret to have her come in the next Sunday to go to be interviewed by Carrie Hines. And, and it's at that interview, he puts the kibosh on Margaret says, you can't speak. You can't get in the newspaper. You can't do any more stuff with Mormonism in, in public at all. But, What's interesting is that it happened so fast. I mean, as soon as Boyd Packer, it's like, you know, the same day. I think actually what actually happened was that Carrie went and met with Boyd Packer, who, who lives down a little bit south of where we live or lived down there. And he went down and met with him, I think, and then went and then called Margaret in right away. And um, that that's what really Margaret was the first of the September 6th. She never got excommunicated with the September 6th, but she was early on targeted by Boyd Packer, and he never relented until November 30th of 2000 when she was finally excommunicated seven, seven years after the September 6th. Yeah, and it's pretty, I think I should add that from the very beginning, it was very clear that Boyd Packer was orchestrating this. He tried to deny it. The church tried to deny it. But Carrie Hines actually told us outright that that he had been contacted by Packer, and he tried to sort of hem and haw around it. But Paul used his lawyer, lawyerly techniques. I said, "Did I said did did Boyd Packer direct you to excommunicate us?" He said, "No." I said, "Carrie, was the fair implication of what Boyd Packer told you?" that you should excommunicate us. Was that the fair implication of what he said? And Carrie said, yes, it was. And then and Hartman Rector also told me that Boyd Packer was behind the excommunications of September 6th, all of them. And in fact, when uh, when the stake president of Avraham Gileadi down in, in Salem wouldn't excommunicate Avraham Gileadi, he replaced them with this BYU religion teacher, uh, I forget his name now, Lauren, Leon. Anyway, he went. He, he Boyd put Packer him, went down. 
changed state presidents. And this, that state president did, did excommunicate Abraham, who, of course, was only out of the church for 18 months. But still, uh, it was all... And what's really irritating me is this lady, this recent Sarah Patterson, who wrote this recent book on, on the September 6th that came out from Signature Books, she, when she made her presentation this year at Sunstone on, on, on July 29th, I think it was, uh, I was on the panel and I heard her, her presentation. She wasn't physically present, but she had a, a, a video that she sent instead. And she, in this video, and apparently in the book, uh, I haven't read it, but Margaret has, but in, in the video, she claimed that the reason why the church did the excommunications uh, in September was to keep its doctrine pure. And at, at the end of the session, I said, I'm sorry, I have to disagree with this nascent historian who's got this wrong. We knew exactly why this was going on. It wasn't to keep the doctrine pure. It was to maintain control over anyone speaking something that Boyd Packer or the rest of the apostles didn't like. It was a, a complete, it completely based on uh, authoritarianism. It had anything to do with purity. Anyway, well, they claimed purity later. You know, that was their excuse. Well, we have to keep the doctrine pure, so we have to get rid of all these people who have polluted the doctrine. Um, I think just a couple of other things, and I don't know, RFM, if you have a, a, a specific question right now, but I can go back to 93 and kind of, you know, so it started with me where I was in trouble. Um, and um, then Paul jumped in, insulted the state president right and left. But also, it wasn't just that. Paul gave a speech at Sunstone just a month later. Um, what was the title of your talk, Paul? Um, I, I want to clarify that by Margaret saying that he insulted the state president. It really, I was I didn't reduce myself to ad hominem attacks. What no, I said, I, what I said to him basically was, look, Carrie, you should stay out of this because you're a real estate agent and you're not a theologian. And when you're That's done doing your dirty work, Boyd Packer is going to throw you out like an old newspaper. And I said, you, you, you're in something you shouldn't be in. And he said, well, this is, this is like in the family. I'm the father and you're like the children and you have to obey the rules. And I said, Carrie, that's a ridiculous analogy because we're not like your children. Uh, and I said, uh, and he said, you don't, you don't obey the prophet. And we're sitting in his office, which is in a beautiful house next to the country club here in, in Cottonwood. And, and we're sitting in his office and, and, and he says, you don't obey the prophet. And I said, well, either do you. Look at this deer that you've got on the wall that you've shot. And he says, it's, it's not a deer, it's an elk. I said, well, okay, fine. It's an elk, fine. You shot the elk. He says, what has that got to do with anything? I said, don't you remember the speech that, that uh, Spencer Kimball ga gave about don't shoot the little birds? I said, this is, this is much bigger than a bird. I remember that said, speech. He says to me, well, that's not controversial now. And I said, well, it is for the elk. <laughs> <laughs> and so... And so he, he would take, because I called him Carrie instead of president, and because I treated him as an equal, which they can't tolerate, he interpreted these things as insults. But I never called him, you know, names, but I kept contradicting him, which they can't tolerate. And so he said, well, if you give that speech at Sunstone that you said you're going to give, I'm going to excommunicate you. And I said, 
I'm going to give the speech. And the speech I gave was um, all Choose is not, not well in Zion. Can I say it? All is not well in Zion, false teachings of the true church. And and that that speech was the single evidentiary document at my, my excommunication that they brought out. They they had it they didn't review my life in the church, they didn't review any of the service I had done, they didn't review anything except that one speech. And what got them madder than anything else was the fact that I made a quip where I said, uh, you know, uh, Russell Nelson says that when an apostle enters the room, we should all stand up. And I said, yeah, maybe we should all stand up and leave. And and when they, they actually played the tape of me speaking this at Sunstone, and I can tell you, even though the Sunstone audience thought that was funny, the high council did not. And so they were upset at my insubordination. When you say that none of your service or your mission or anything came up in your excommunication trial, it makes me think that maybe they threw you away like an old newspaper. Yes, they did. <laughs> so what? What can you tell us anything more about this trial that you went through when you got excommunicated? Because I know that at least from your point of view, you were drawing focus away from Margaret and putting the, the focus on you sort of like, uh, was it Tom Sawyer who took the blame for Becky Thatcher and took the whipping she should have gotten in school? Was that the story? Well, I don't know if Margaret would agree, but that seems to, they thought that by excommunicating me, they would break my ceiling with Margaret and my children. They, they would uh, nullify my baptism and confirmation and my endowment. And in fact, uh, in December of 1993, uh, Carrie Hines came to my house and had a letter from, I had appealed my the decision of the High Council. I couldn't appeal it to the first presidency because President uh, Benson was comatose at the time. Hmm. And the apostles were involved in my excommunication anyway. Boyd Packer said he had the permission, he got permission from them to do whatever he did. He made that statement. So I appealed to the General Assembly of the church, the general assembly of all the priesthood bodies of the church, which was how, how Oliver Cowdery was excommunicated. I said, I, I, I'm, there's one quorum higher than the first presidency, and that's the constituent body of all the priesthood quorums of the church. And I said, I'll make my defense there. Well, they, they actually sent me a letter saying no, and it was signed uh, Gordon Hinckley and Thomas Monson, I believe, uh, whoever the counselors were to Ezra Benson. And uh, I wasn't allowed to read it. I wasn't allowed to touch the letter. I wasn't allowed to have a copy of the letter. Carrie read it to me. It basically said, your appeal is denied. We're, and, we're not, and that's it, you're excommunicated. And I said, Carrie, and he's sitting in my living room. And I said, Carrie, do you believe that your, the excommunication nullifies my my baptism, my remission of sins, my endowment, my priesthood, my connection to my wife and my children? He said, yes. I said, then why don't you just kill me? <laughs> why don't you just kill me? If you believe that, you should just kill me. It's more merciful. You're going to, you're going to basically cut me off from everybody I love, including God Almighty, and you're going to do that because I had a, I was insubordinate to, to these men. 
There was not one thing said in my high council about teaching false doctrine. So I think I said, you, if you believe that you can do this, you're a bigger idiot than I thought. Yeah. Yes, the apostles have the power to bind on earth and bind in heaven and loose on earth and loose in heaven, but they do not have the power to bind what God has loosed nor to loose what God has bound. Yeah. So, um, interestingly, at the time of Paul's excommunication, his, uh, I like to use the word court trial. They try to soften it all, but it isn't. It's basically a court. But it took place on September 19th. It started at six in the morning and it went until three in the afternoon. Um, a lot of the friends that we had from Sunstone had a big vigil outside during that whole time, singing hymns, talking, etc., cetera, to, to support. Our daughters at the time were between the ages of nine and 14. So we have four daughters. And our youngest one, she did not want to leave Paul. So she, uh, she basically slept on the couch outside the high council room the whole time. And our daughters never wanted to have anything to do with Mormonism or relig religion at all after that event. Um, none of them feel any connection with Mormonism. It was very devastating on them. And because it was such a public event, they knew that friends at school knew about this and they felt ostracized. So it was very damaging to our children. Um, so I don't know. Do you want me to go on and tell something about how I finally was asked? Yes, Margaret, what were you thinking? Yeah, and I think this is I going think, on with Paul. Well, first of all, I mean, obviously, I mean, it wasn't just Paul that was asked, but all right. six of the people who were excommunicated during that famous September, um, I knew all of them very, very closely. Right. So they were all friends. Uh, and it was a very devastating experience for the Mormon intellectual community. Um, by the way, it was so highly publicized at the time. RFM, you said you heard about it, but there was an article every day, almost in September and October in the Salt Lake Tribune about all of these events. Um, and Paul and I were interviewed by BBC. We were interviewed by CNN, by the Canadian public broadcasting, um, all, all around. I mean, during this period, I actually, some of my feminist friends and I, we were like, our pictures were on the front cover of the LA Times religion page. So, I mean, it was huge. So, you know, we had phone call after phone call either people supporting us or others telling us that we were going to hell, right? So it was it was a traumatic time. There's no question that it was. And hard on our family, hard on our children. But eventually things more or less died down. Uh, the event that Paul talked about when Carrie Hines um, came and delivered that letter that said that his appeal had been denied, he turned and looked at me and said, I still need to take care of you. We're not done with you. But I knew at that moment he was he was so exhausted. Carrie Hines, yeah, he was a real estate agent. He didn't want to be involved in any of this. Um, his name was in the paper. 
he felt really horrible. It was, it was hard on him. You know, I had, I felt compassion for him, even though, you know, basically he was doing what the leaders wanted him to. It was hard on him. But so he said to me, we're going to still have to take care of you. Well, um, time went by. So that was in, you know, September, 1993. I have to also say um, that I felt on some level, I felt betrayed because I felt like that I had not been able to tell my own story that I had been because of the priesthood structure. And I don't blame Paul for this. He kind of tried to, to say that he ran in to save me, but really it was the priesthood structure of the church. You know, they've got to take care of the male priesthood leader. I think it's really significant that of all of the kind of uh, people that were uh, disciplined in the nineties, Paul and I were the only couple. So I think it's really great that we're being interviewed here together for the first time, maybe because we were a couple that spoke out. We spoke together. We were sometimes on panels together, but at the same time, we were independent. Like I didn't depend on him for my ideas. We, you know, I was kind of my own person. So that September, I felt like that I had been sidelined in a way that I wasn't taken seriously on my own because that had been an important part of my relationship with Paul. I have to say that I've always felt that he respects me a great deal. He never tries to speak for me. <laughs> we sometimes interrupt each other, but we really don't try to speak for each other. He has his ideas. I have mine. We did write this book together. Um, sometimes people call us the battling Toscanos, right? Um, we disagree sometimes, you know, strongly. So it was painful because in a way I was cut off from the church, but I hadn't been allowed to have my own day in court or to have my say or to kind of put my own story out there. And so that was very painful. Well, interestingly, you know, first of all, I thought they had forgotten me. Um, I was, um, I was teaching at the university of Utah, but I was also trying to finish up my dissertation for my PhD. Uh, to, with all the things that happened with the church, plus raising my four daughters and teaching full time, took me a while to finish that PhD, but I did it. Uh, and um, but then um, in actually it happened a year, 1999, in November of 1999, we had moved in the meantime. We lived, we didn't move that far. We were in kind of over in Cottonwood and we moved to East Murray into our house, which was new when we moved in. Um, and suddenly I get this phone call from, I should say that before that, a year before that, in like 1998, I got a phone call from what would have been my local bishop, but I hadn't gone to church since Paul was excommunicated in 93. But this is like 98, five years later. And the bishop wanted to talk to me. And I thought, well, want to see what he has to say. So I went there. He was a nice man. I liked him. They're also nice, right? Mm -hmm. um, but he um, he asked me about strangers in paradox on the mm -hmm. the the chapter. We have a chapter on the temple, and I, I kind of thought, well, you know, why are you calling me in? And he said, well, he didn't tell me that he'd been instructed to call me in, but he said 
I hope I don't have to do anything. You're a really nice woman. Yeah. How old, how old was that book? I mean, when was it published? 1990. And by the way, I had published a lot of things after that. So, I mean, I'm still publishing on Mormon Mormonism, right? So I've published a lot. So that was like, but for some reason, that book really, I think, bothered uh, Boyd Packer. So that was in 98. Then a year later, I get this phone call from the secretary of the state president in the state that we were then a part of when we moved, wanted to talk to me. And I, again, I, I kind of knew why I was being called in, but I, I was curious and wanted to find out. So I went in and talked to the state president. He was such a strange man. His name was Del Blake. He was all friendly. And I love this all the time, including during the court. He never said my last name right. I was always Sister Toscano. And <laughs> later I, I argue, I wondered, I wonder if I was really exed or was it this other lady named Sister Toscano? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so he called me in asking me uh, about, you know, what I was doing, you know, what was my relationship to the church? Did I still wear my garments? Um, weird questions. And I said, why are you calling me in? Is this, you know, do you have instructions to call me in and to, you know, find out, you know, what is it? He said, oh, no, I just wanted to get to know you. <laughs> he was all friendly, you know, so friendly and nice. And interestingly, though, I realized later that he was following a script because almost a year to the day after that first time he called me in, he called me in again. But this time he said he gave me a summons to appear in the church disciplinary council. And, and so. It was a high council. Well, and that was the interesting thing. Usually women, you're, uh, and this was true with Lynn Whitesides, that she was uh, disciplined by a bishop's court. So, you know, you have to be a priesthood holder, a Melchizedek priesthood holder. But um, I was I was tried by the high council court. And so I realized that he there's a procedure that they have to try to show. It's so weird the way in which on one level, they try to follow this procedure and yet the procedure itself is so skewed and unfair. And so he, it had been a year. He, he saw that first meeting as a warning. I had been given a warning that I better shape up. And Even though it, it seemed to you, like he said, I just wanted to get to know you better and what underwear you have on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a it warning. Was, it was yeah. a warning. And then a year later, I get another summons, and then he gets, gives me the paper. And the accusation is that I am an apostate and that I have, and that they're, I'm an apostate, and they're going to hold a disciplinary council, the high council court. And um, because um, it seems evident to them that I am, they use that word pernicious again, like they did with Paul. I'm teaching pernicious doctrine. So, um, so I, I decided to go and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't want it to be in the news or anything. Our family had been so distressed by everything that had gone on with Paul that I decided to go by myself. I didn't even want Paul to go with me. I went by myself. I got there and, um, 
interestingly, um, they held the they held it in the Relief Society room, and the way they arranged the chairs, the stake president and his two counselors and the secretary was in a long table to my right. I'm in a single chair without anything in front of me. And in fact, this kind of visceral experience I, I memory I have is that I was wearing a suit, but the skirt was a little bit tight. And I was so nervous all during the, the court that I had to keep my knees together, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to make sure that I was modest. But at any rate, and then the high council were arranged in a semicircle in front of me, 12 of them. And the state president began the, the, the meeting by saying, you know, we're here to, you know, examine Sister Toscano. And so before, when I had met with him, he always was like this friendly, nice guy. Suddenly, when I'm in this, this disciplinary council, he becomes like this aggressive prosecuting attorney. He said, I am going to show, he's like giving an opening speech to the 12 uh, high councilmen saying, I'm going to show you why Sister Toscano is an apostate. And he had in front of me a stack like this, Xerox copies of everything I had written, all of Strangers in Paradox, but all the speeches I'd given at Sunstone, anything I'd published. And in fact, there were transcripts of a couple of interviews that had not been published that were part of this thing. And it, so it was this big stack of papers and all of this highlighted. And he also had like a script that he was reading. The first thing he did was he called in the star witness. Suddenly Carrie Hines, whom I haven't seen for seven years, appears. And he, so the pre, uh, Dale Blake says to Carrie Hines, is it true um, President Hines, that you sent a letter to Margaret Toscano to tell her that she was not allowed to publish, speak, discuss anything to do with church history or doctrine, or there would be a court on her. Carrie Hines seemed really embarrassed. He said, yes, that's true. I did send that. Mm -hmm. Did she obey you? Mm -hmm. No, she did not. And so, you know, there was the big thing. I had been told by leaders, and that's how they define apostasy. If you disagree with them and they tell you not to do something, but you continue to do it, then you're an apostate by definition. And so then President Hines kind of creeped out. But then he spent the next two hours, um, you know, bringing up all these things, quoting from stuff I'd written. And of course, the main thing is my arguments that women should be ordained to priesthood. He was upset by my talks on Heavenly Mother. Um, and he was he would not let me answer questions. When he was grilling me every now and then, um, I would, I would you know, try to give a good argument. And he would interrupt me mid-sentence and say, you are not allowed to make that kind of an argument again. Um, you could only say what I give you permission to say. It was really, it was very brutal. And, um, then this bizarre thing. So the grilling went on for an hour and a half, two hours. Then I went out I was out for about a half hour. They brought me back in and told me that I had been ex, you know, that they were going to excommunicate me. And then suddenly at the meeting is over, all the high councilmen get up and want to shake my hand and say to me, I was so impressed by you. You are so intelligent and you are so passionate. And 
really, you're so impressive. And I'm going, yeah, and I'm so excommunicated. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, I sort of kept quiet about that for a year. And then she a year came later, home. She came home after this. Yeah, she, by myself. She, she told, told the me, story to me, and uh, there might have been one or two other people there. And I Our said, daughter. I said, my famous line, I said, it was like being gang raped by the Care Bears. <laughs> it's true. The fact that they can, and, and of course, later when I wrote about it, I, I talk about how um, the politeness of Mormon society covers over violence because excommunication is a violent act. You know, even if you, I mean, I don't believe that they have the power to really condemn me to hell or anything, right? So I don't believe that, but it is still a violent act. And I, I mean, I, you know, neither then nor now did I want to go back to the church or, you know, did I think that they had the authority to really hurt me on any kind of, you know, larger level. But it, it was amazing to me how much how 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 much that how bad that felt in terms of just I felt violated. I felt it was it was very disturbing. It's not just and, about the church. It's about your family, your culture, your identity, the the investment that you've made in a religion for decades and decades. It's about the people that you know are in the church that love you, that they're not going to want to talk to you. It's happened to me. People that I've known for a very long time who I love and uh they they break off communication with you because it's too difficult for them to have a relationship with someone whom the church has uh, identified as an apostate. And they, you know, people don't, their careers might be put in jeopardy uh, because they work for the church or they have connections that would be upset if they know that they know you. I've gone to funerals where I feel like the devil going to heaven to, you know, argue over the body of Job or something where you're, you feel like you're, yeah, I'm at the funeral of somebody that I knew and loved, but I don't feel, I, I feel awful there because mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by people who they see you and they think, mm, you know, there's that person whom the leaders have designated is evil. Right. And, and I, I, it was, it was very painful. My father was dead by the time I was excommunicated and I was glad for that because I was always close to him and, you know, it would have been very devastating for him. My mother really was not functioning well at that time, but I have siblings and it was, it, it was very hard on them because if they're active, you know, I get my family, they're open-minded, but they're torn because they know you, they know you're a good person. At least I think that's how my siblings feel about me. And yet these leaders have said that you deserve to be excommunicated. And so they have to deal with that sort of dissonance, that that tension that they feel. And of course, you know, I have two degrees from BYU. So, I mean, they they send me requests for money all the time, but they don't want me to appear on campus or to speak or anything. Um, so, I mean, and I know probably a lot of people in your audience have had this experience. Maybe, Bill, you have, too, that, um, you know, it because if you're part of this large Mormon social network, there, you know, there are real effects of it. Even if you don't believe, even if you have no desire to be in the church anymore, 
it, it, I think it can be a painful experience. And that was certainly true for me. And, and I want to say one more thing about the excommunication. I think it's very important that that even though they waited for seven years, and by the re way, I think there were three or four reasons why they did. First of all, it is true that Paul kind of distracted the state president. He knew he should, he was, you know, uh, Packer told him he was supposed to pursue me. He didn't. But there were two bishops who refused, refused to hold a court on me. So that was one of the reasons. There were two bishops that refused to hold a court. But uh, Boyd Packer wanted me out. He wanted me out. And he finally found a state president who was willing to do it. And um, so, you know, it was important to Boyd Packer and other leaders that I be designated as an apostate. Uh, that they could dismiss anything I had said. For me, one of the most troubling one of the most troubling uh, results of being excommunicated is not you know obviously the leaders think you're no good, and a lot of true believing Mormons think you're no good, but a lot of the intellectuals in Mormonism also think you're no good. That is, uh, if you they know, want to still, yeah, you're not going to get any awards from the. Uh, uh, Association of Mormon Letters. You're not going to be asked to speak at the Mormon History Association. You're not going to be included in certain conferences. You're not going to be quoted. People will take your language and use it, but never give you an attribution. And uh, this kind of thing is hurtful too. So you get sandwiched between the true believers and the true non-believers, and you wind up kind of isolated. And uh, I, I think, you know, for Lynn Whiteside's a very good friend of ours still. Uh, she has followed a path of spirituality very different from the church, very separate from the church. Um, Margaret and I have, uh, you know, Abraham returned to the church. Maxine has returned to the church. Mike Quinn has died. Lavina has died. And so Margaret and I are um, in a situation where we even though I'm, you know, I criticize the church and I don't believe the church is true uh, in the way that people will testify on Fast Sunday, I, uh, the fact that I still believe that th there's something spiritual in in the Mormon restoration, I'm, I'm not sure every, you know, I know a lot of people hate that, they d disagree with that, but I, I think that in spite of all of the, like I've said in the last video, Mormonism is a gold mine under a pig farm, and you have to dig through a lot of manure to get to the gold. And it may not be worth it for most people. And I have no judgment for people who leave. And I have no judgment for people who stay. Uh, you know, I, I do believe in the grace of God. <laughs> I believe the grace of God is sufficient for all of us. But I, I think that um, it's difficult to be in the middle in the excluded middle. Can, can I interject here for a second? Margaret, I was, when I was reading your interview with, uh, I think it was PBS, and mm -hmm. talking, you know, when you mentioned that you were uh, excommunicated in a stake disciplinary court, it sort of threw me, and you were starting to speak to that here a moment ago, because my understanding is women, it's a strange thing, right? You don't hold priesthood, so... <laughs> You get disciplined at the local level, whereas if a priesthood holder has any chance of being excommunicated, uh, they will be. It'll be a stake disciplinary council. 
And I'm just curious because you said two bishops wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And they found a stake president who did. What was the move there that it went from where it should have been by church policy, a local level bishop at a ward with just the bishopric handling it versus a stake president uh, changing it to a stake disciplinary council? Any thoughts there? Well, I think, first of all, that for me, it was an indication that Boyd Packer really wanted me out and that he would. And, and I see that they do this. Uh, they they kind of slip back and forth between being very bound by certain rules. But if the rules aren't working for them, they will change them to make it to for their end result. And I, I think it's quite pernicious the way they do that, in fact. Um, but um, I, I think the fact that the... I mean, maybe I'm sounding too self-important here, but I really think that it was a sign that they thought my excommunication was something that needed to happen and it was very important and they were going to make sure that it happened. And the state president had more authority. So his authority could, you know, he's not going to wait for a bishop who who thinks that I really deserve it. Um, he's going to make sure it happens. And I, I mean, I, we have direct evidence that, Carrie Hines was instructed by Packer. I don't have that exact same evidence for Dell Blake, but I think he was. Just my interaction with him and everything that happened. And I think that Boyd Packer wanted it to happen. Had you done anything in 2000 that, again, they did all this back in 93. They sort of tell you, we'll take care of you later. Some time goes by. Did something happen around 2000 that you feel like would have justified revisiting this or or even no. just a completely separate instance of church discipline? No, and that's what's so strange, Bill, is that um, so during that time period, so I'd written a lot between 84 and um, even like 96 and 97. I'd written, well, 96 maybe. I'd written a lot. And then I had about a four-year hiatus because I was finishing that damn dissertation, right? Uh, my 550-page dissertation on medieval women mystics. And um, it was a huge work. But And then I started publishing again. Actually, I had not published or really given too many talks in the two or three years before it. So that was the other thing that was so strange about it is that it wasn't like I had suddenly done a public event and therefore they were going to punish me for speaking out because I'd done plenty of that in the, in the, in before that I'd been on a lot of interviews in the papers. I'd done a lot before that. And then there was like a three year hiatus just where I was trying to finish up my doctoral work and I was teaching full time. And then suddenly this, it was really kind of out of the blue in a strange way. I don't think that I want to answer bills. Okay. Because okay, what do you think, I don't Paul? think you understand the personality of Boyd Packer. Marion no, no, Hanks. Oh, no, I get it. <laughs> Marion <laughs> Hanks once told the story that he made some comment to Boyd Packer back in the days when Boyd Packer was an assistant to the 12, and I think Marion Hanks may have been too. And it was uncomplimentary. It was a, somewhat of a quip. And Boyd Packer never forgot it. And when Boyd Packer became a member of the 12, instead of Marion Hanks, which was one of the great mistakes of all time, uh, the he held it against him. And Marion Hanks mentioned it. It wasn't directly to me, but it was somebody who knew both of us. 
because I, I knew Marion Hanks a little. I, I visited with him. I visited, <laughs> well, with, I visited with about I visited with about 17 apostles in my time, uh, including L. Tom Perry or uh, some of these people. I predicted that L. Tom Perry would be called to assistant to the twelve, and then uh, to the twelve apostles. And when he was called as a, as an assistant to the twelve, I was working at the Ensign Magazine, and he came over to my office after he had been called and ordained. He came over to my office and asked me how I knew about it, and uh, I said I I must have been inspiration because if you think I had some kind of inside channel, you're mistaken. Uh, and he he. I, I may have told that story. No before, one ever thought I, find, I was inspired. So that didn't. Nobody happen. ever thought I was inspired. I don't inspired. know. To go back to your question, Bill. Do you have an idea on it? I mean, I think. I mean, I even though I hadn't done anything before that, I had published so many things, and I had done so much that I think I had a body of work out there that was threatening to them. Um, and and like then the later, you know, starting basically, I think I had like a hiatus of maybe five years where I didn't publish a lot. And then I've done a lot since 2004, but you know, there, I think it was maybe that too, Boyd Packer's revenge, <laughs> which I, I do not underestimate that. I think he very much felt that and that it was personal against me and Paul. That was very clear when we did our whole interviews with Carrie Hines, but also um, I, I think that, I sometimes like to joke that Boy Packer, Packer may be the only one who understood how important my work on women in priesthood was. Because hmm. <laughs> it sounds to me like somebody got a burr under their saddle from that uh, Strangers in Paradox. Is that? Yeah, yeah. From 1990 and never let it go. Because I really don't think that your bishop or your state president in 1999 was reading that and saying, oh, hey, wait, this person who has never been to church while I've been in leadership. Uh, is in my stake, and I need to give them a call and talk to them about this. I don't think yeah. that happened. No, and RFM, that was one of the things that for me was very insidious, how much they lied to me yeah. and about, you know, oh, we just thought they'd be good to call you in. And oh, yeah, we just happened to, I just happened to read, you know, I happened to have copies of everything you know, that you've ever published or said, <laughs> right? This huge pile and of transcripts. Stuff. And it's I, I wanted to say I wanted to say to Bill that I didn't mean to in my telling of that story to suggest that you didn't have a perfect understanding of the nature of Boyd Packer's way of doing things. He was a very interesting character. I always used to say that he confused the church with the Air Force and actually thought of himself as a general somehow. <laughs> <And> he was <laughs> always ordering people around and thinking they should obey. And I don't understand why he had that personality, what happened to him, but something happens. I think it had something to do with his little factory when he was a kid. <laughs> yes, yeah. that, might, that might be it. More than that, I don't know. Now we actually have a feature here, which you know about, Paul, you may know about it too, Margaret, where we allow viewers to call in at the end of the show. And I don't know oh, if we've got the, I, you saw the, the, the banner up there, a little bit earlier, are the lines full already, Bill? We we've got we've got a couple of phone calls in the call bank. We can try to put one of them on. I might have the same issue I had last week, where I'll have to hold it to the microphone, and they may not be able to hear you guys, but you'll hear them. Okay. By the way, before we get to the phone calls, I just want to say one thing, one line 
that this whole scenario that you described, Margaret, reminds me of about the bishop being or the state president being so nice and I just need to talk to you and all this stuff. And then they want to shake your hand afterward. Why I can smile and murder while I smile. Sorry, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> a man can smile and smile and be a villain. Shakespeare, yeah. At least I am sure it may be so in Denmark. So you went for Hamlet, I went for Richard the Third. I think so. <laughs> there are a lot of good points there. <laughs> yes. Well, and I um the authoritarianism, the uh hypocrisy, the kind of insidious way that they do these things. Um, the fact that they don't really care about your character, your really even, you know, do you believe anything? I mean, I, I know that some people are X because they're of, they'll say of their, you know, they don't have a testimony or something, but it's worse than that. It's if you will not line up, I think that's the bottom line that it's an authoritarian structure that you must line up and if you do not line up then there is no place for you i mean they they told me i had to be silent the idea that oh you can believe whatever you want but that that very threatening letter that i got clear back in 93 that they brought up again in when i was exed in 2000 that i was i was given the ultimatum you cannot speak discuss write or publish anything to do with church history or doctrine, or we will bring you before a church council, disciplinary council. It was, it was very strong. And, and it was like, Oh, silence. You have to be silent. And it, is the call know, waiting? Is the, the, is the caller waiting? Uh, well, I haven't, we hope so. I haven't yet. Yeah, they're in the call bank, but I haven't added them to the stream yet. So we can do that. Okay. Let me uh, let me grab the first one. I believe it is uh, Trevor. Trevor, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Great. Go ahead, my friend. All right. Um, I want to be brief um, because I don't want to take your guys' time. But, Margaret, you, you've been fantastic. And uh, something you said early in the show really resonated with me. My whole family were converts in the early 90s and we ended up exiting the church at the same time um down the road but um you said that you your family was different that you had an open house and that was very much like my my family that we had no questions off limits we always had a lust for learning um and you said that you always got people telling you that you were such a, um, um, oh my gosh, I'm dropping. <laughs> it's okay, Trevor. Trevor, no, yeah. no pressure. Can you hear me, Trevor? He can't hear me. The ideas that you had. And my mother got told that same thing. Um, and it's just, I've never heard anyone else have the same experience my family had and so it's just refreshing to hear that somebody else has had this um and it's it's funny because we would always get told that 
people at church would feel the spirit emanating from our family. And the funny thing is, we never really did anything that was Mormon. Um, besides going to church on Sunday, we left Mormonism on Sunday meetings. <laughs> um, but no, it's just um, it's just funny how they will say they like the ideas, but then when push comes to shove, it's, they'll shove you out of the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Trevor. For thank you, Trevor, for that comment. Um, yeah, I think it's very sad that um, that the church sets up a, a structure that does not encourage a loving community in many ways. I mean, I know some people have it, you know, and, and it can be different depending on the ward and where you live and everything. But unfortunately, I think there's too much in this authoritarian structure that really uh, ends up hurting people and their relationship with others. So thank you for sharing that. Awesome. And then uh, we'll take the, I've got one more call here in the call bank. I don't have a name, so I'll pull it up here. Caller, what's the name? Hey, it's Sheena. Sheena. Go ahead, Sheena. You're on Mormonism Live. Okay. Um, I have personal experience with a family member being excommunicated, um, given your two exceptional um, minds and understanding of doctrine and theological issues. Uh, can you explain um, more thoroughly, like um, the excommunication or removal of membership, like what that does to one's baptismal, temple covenant, dealings, and and their access to the atonement of Jesus Christ? I can tell you what it does. <laughs> so I don't know, Paul, if you want to respond to that. I mean, I mean, RFM is right. I mean, and I think that when Paul talked about his conversation with Carrie Hines, it illustrates that, that the church's position is that your baptism is, is null, you know, that it's, it's canceled, your ceilings are canceled. So they're really cutting you off from spiritual blessings. I personally do not believe that. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, if I think about my friends like Mike Quinn, um, he would always say that. I mean, it was sad for him because he, a very good historian who wrote a lot that challenged the church. But interestingly, he always saw himself as a believer in God um, and felt like that, you know, he was OK with God. So I think that it it really, you know, it depends on where you're at. For some people, it's just good riddance. I don't want to think about it anymore. But for somebody like Mike, um, it makes you rethink things and I think turn to a, a an inner spirituality. You go away from institutional approval to really looking toward, you know, what your relationship, what you see your relationship with God as. Yeah, that was the only that was the last call, Arvin. There weren't any more in the bank at that point. Okay. All right. Oh, well. This has been such a wonderful opportunity. I don't want to say goodbye without giving you both a chance to have a final word and say anything that it is that you have on your mind. Margaret, can I just say that it's been wonderful hearing from you and your side of things as well as you, Paul. You seem to have gotten emotional during the last part of the interview. And I was wondering if there was anything that, if I'm right or if there's anything that's causing that. You're asking me if I felt something emotional? Yes. 
I'm I'm I, I'm laughing a little bit because I am known for usually I'm I'm not a real emotional type, but I sometimes joke, get me in front of a camera and I will cry. Um, but no, I actually wasn't. But I have to say that maybe the emotion that you felt was that um, even after all these years, there's something very painful about being treated so badly. And I think the other part of the emotion is that um, it affects your relationship with people who are still in the church. And in my case, with family members. And it can be hard. Um, on the other hand, I'm very happy where I am right now. I, I feel at peace in my life. I, I, I feel like my life is really good. I have no desire to be part of Mormonism again. But I still like talking about it. And um, so I appreciate very much Bill and RFM being on this program. Um, I really, I guess one of the things I believe in strongly is I like to talk across, you know, polar, you know, the kind of polarization. I, I, I like to talk to different people. And I think it's the teacher in me that I think we can find some common ground. And I like to do that. So thank you for having me on the show. Oh, very good. Our pleasure. And we like talking about Mormonism here as well. And I think our audience does too. Paul, did you have any concluding thoughts? Well, just a parting shot is that uh, authoritarianism on the part of the leaders is matched in its idiocy by certainty on the part of the members. And that the certainty of members and the authoritarian nature of the leaders creates a very inhospitable climate for people that really want to find out the truth. And as I said in the last uh, episode I had with you guys, I do believe that there is a transcendent truth that Mormon is, Mormonism is pointing to. When I say transcendent truth, it transcends the church. Whether it's really true in the metaphysical sense, I, don't, I can't say. But it is that Jesus Christ is the supreme being. And the reason why I think this is such an important point, I make it again, and that is that if God would come down, and if the supreme being comes down to be a Jewish carpenter and is willing to die for mankind, sacrifice himself for mankind, it ought to put to death all of the sacrifices mankind has made to God, and it should flatten all the hierarchies. All the, all the pharaoh's pyramids have to be flattened, all the corporate structure, all the dictatorships, all the power mechanisms that operate in families and outside families. And I think it's a very great model for all of our power structures and our economic structures. And it may even in the end be true in the larger <laughs> sense. Can't be so. I always say that at the end because it seems so patently ridiculous to believe that a Jewish carpenter would be the supreme being. And yet the whole universe seems to me to be a kind of ridiculous proposition. And yet there it is in all of its glory. <laughs> Very good. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Margaret. I wish you all the best in the future. And um, hopefully we'll, we'll be seeing more of you on all sorts of different platforms because I got a feeling this is just the start for you too. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And thank I've been you guys. Video. Thank you so much. You. Yeah. Thank you for having us both. I, I actually like being on with Paul. So it was fun. You're very, very welcome. So thank you again. And uh, until next week, when we have Mormonism Live every Wednesday at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time. We'll see you next week. Same bat time. Same bat channel. 
performing is in life. Better than touching your own little factory. <laughs> <laughs>